All right. Welcome back to Virtual Startup Academy's podcast. This is episode two, and I'm here with Dr. David Stevens of Tabor College in Kansas. It's, it's in Kansas, right? It is in Kansas, right in the actually right in the heart of the country. We're about 90 miles from the center of the states. That's awesome. So kind of giving you guys a little background about where I met Dr. Stevens. Uh, he was a professor at Azusa Pacific University when I was in grad school. And I don't know if I've ever kind of related this to him, but um, I was in my second quarter at APU and I was really struggling as a person. He came in and started talking about stuff I'd never heard a teacher or a professor talk about in my entire life. And the first day in class completely reinvented my entire life. And I went up and to talk to him after class and I told him, hey, like, this is kind of my background. Like the stuff you talked to us about was totally different. And it really connected with me. And that was the start of my life turning around. And I'm really grateful that I managed to get into your class. And it, 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 it was just the best thing that ever happened to me. So thank you for that. Um, <laughs> it was amazing. Yeah, that, that's a great way to start a podcast. Yeah, uh, throw me off my game by uh, bringing tears to my eyes. Thanks a lot. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So tell me, what, uh, what's your background in education? What's your current role? What are you doing today? Well, so I've been a teacher for about 26 years. And I started out teaching uh, high school math. Uh, then uh, at, it wasn't long after that where I ended up accidentally in an elementary classroom because when my wife at the time wanted to move to, uh, to Southern California, so I was teaching math up in Benicia, outside of San Francisco. We moved down to Southern California and uh, found out that the job I was planning on taking wasn't available. The, uh, the math teacher decided not to retire. So I took a fifth grade class Long story short, at the end of the year, the uh, one of the principals called me and said, hey, that job is open. You ready to move over here? And I said, nope. Fifth grade was the most fun I've ever had in my life. And I stuck with it for about nine years. And uh, one of the things I realized even back then was the fact that in my own teacher training, early on teaching fifth grade, I realized this, that in my own training, I had no idea how brains work. I, I knew all the methods. I knew all the tricks of the trade. Felt like I was a pretty good teacher, but I just felt like I wanted to know more. I wanted to know how brains actually function, what causes brains not to function well, what environments cause brains to function best. And so I just started studying and I just got kind of hooked. And I was studying, studying, studying. I couldn't stop. And it would change everything about the way I taught, changed my entire classroom setting, environment, everything, to the point that principals started telling me to stop doing what I was doing. I had one principal that literally came into my classroom and said, hey, you need to get your kids separated, put them in rows and get them to quiet down. And I said, that's just not how my math works. How, how are they going to debate? And she said, what do they have to debate over math? And I said, OK, you just don't understand how my classroom works. Just And at the end of the year, my students scored uh, number one in California. And we did that for nine years in a row. And it wasn't long after that where my principal started saying, hey, do you want to come teach other teachers what you're doing? <laughs> and I said, and I tried and I did some uh, in-services, but it's really not methodology. It is a, it's a, it's a philosophy of teaching and it's a, it's a way of thinking about learning that changes everything about my classroom and starting with an atmosphere of safety, freedom to speak, freedom to interrupt the teacher when they don't understand something. It's a very funky philosophy that a lot of people just don't get. And so doing teacher in-services were kind of a waste of time. At the end of the in-service, people just wanted to debate me on my ideas. And so we, I, I just realized this was something that was going to take time to influence anybody who's already an educator. So when I got the opportunity, Point Loma Nazarene University, uh, they kind of, they recruited me to come teach their teachers how to teach math. And because I knew a professor there who really loved some of the stuff I was doing. And so uh, they made me an offer I couldn't refuse. And I was planning on doing that for a year, on a, uh, taking a year leave of absence, coming back to teaching. But I had such a blast influencing teachers who weren't in the classroom yet and getting their heads a little bit to think about things a little bit differently. And they were, at that point, they're excited about it because they have, once they've taught for three or four years, it's almost too late because they've got their own methodology and their ways of doing things. So influencing veterans is almost impossible. Influencing the newbies before they start is actually really fun. And so I've been doing that now for the last uh, 16 years, teaching in higher education. So I taught at uh, uh, Point Loma, then I went to Pepperdine, then I went to Azusa Pacific where I met you. And 
Uh, Azusa Pacific ran into some financial problems, so I was not able to start up this new Master of Education in Neuroscience and Trauma that I've had in my head for about 12 years that I've been wanting to launch. And so I uh, had that opportunity at Tabor, and so I came to Kansas and launched my program uh, about a month ago. And that's what I'm doing now. So I've spent the last you know, 14 or 15 years in teacher training, and now I have the opportunity to move out of my associate dean role into the director of my Master of Education in Neuroscience and Trauma. And now I can hopefully influence veteran teachers, actually all teachers, and influence their thinking and the way they do things, especially working with students who have learning disabilities, challenges, or stress and trauma that has affected their learning. So that's where I am now and loving it. That's pretty amazing. Uh, you know, you're the only teacher in this entire business who has ever said the word neuroscience in a classroom. <laughs> and I really related to that because at the end of the day, what are we doing? We're training brains. And if you're not talking about neuroscience in, in conjunction with training brains, you're probably missing something. So, yeah, I, I, I'll tell you, it, it was so exciting to me that I actually, uh, while I was teaching at Pepperdine, I went back to school after I'd got my doctorate at University of Southern California. And then I went and worked on my uh, certificate in neuroscience at Harvard, just because it was so fun to me. I just couldn't get enough of it. And so once I was done with the work at Harvard, I just thought, yeah, this is stuff every teacher needs to know. And, you know, you just get kind of throw your hands in the air. You think, well, how do we do this? How do we change teacher preparation? Well, I'm starting small with my program of 34 students, and we'll see where it goes from there. That's pretty great. I'm excited for you. Yeah, uh, thank you. So teachers and administrators talk a lot about things like student engagement, uh, buy-in in the classroom, ownership in the classroom. Why is it important to learning? And how well is this currently be done, being done in education? Well, you know, the, the major reason that it's important to learn is because students don't learn stuff that doesn't interest them. And they don't pay attention to stuff that doesn't interest them. And so if students ha can't buy into the material and even the way the material is presented, if they don't have some say, if it's not a democracy in the classroom, students become players of the game. And the way we play school is, you know, they sit, be quiet, listen, take notes, be prepared for the quiz. Uh, don't, don't speak up without raising your hand. Those are all kind of, we've got all these general rules that we've all followed throughout our lives in school. And we've all been trained. That's part of the problem is we haven't been trained to pay attention. We haven't been trained to listen. And listening is an actual skill that needs to be taught. It's not even a subject at school. We don't, we don't teach kids how to listen. So the kids don't even know how to pay attention. And so if we want them to buy in, if we want them to actually be engaged in what we're teaching, they really have to be an active participant in everything that they're doing so that it is theirs. So they have some ownership in what goes on in the classroom. Everything from the classroom rules to the enforcement of the rules to the rules of engagement. How do, how do we speak when the teacher is speaking? How do we ask questions when the teacher is speaking? How do we actually engage with other students we disagree with? How do we listen? And how do we listen with ears that help us learn from other people's differing ideas? So without buy-in, kids aren't really learning. We just assume that they're learning when they sit there and nod their heads, like they're paying attention when they're really not. Um, so I, I think it starts with that. I think if we want kids to buy into their own education, they have to really love what they're doing, see the importance in it, and then you'll get by. So as far as what I'm seeing, I can tell you right now, I, I, I went back and thought about this. I've been in more than 300 classrooms to do observations because you know, for 12 years, I was supervising student teachers and going into classrooms all over the place. I was the director of clinical experience at Pepperdine. So I, I've been in a lot of classrooms, more than 300. And I can literally think of one or two classrooms that really was had the students engaged in a way that they were buying it and that they were feeling that they had ownership and where the teacher wasn't doing everything. It wasn't fully controlled by the teacher. And so one was a math class at San Clemente High School in California and one was an elementary class. And I can't remember where it was, but the teachers were phenomenal. But when you think about it, in all of those classroom settings, I only saw two or three. That's pretty amazing. That's pretty small. That, that just shows me that 
we're not doing it right. We're not teaching teachers the right skills to actually reach all students because the system that we are teaching teachers to be to succeed in, you know, well, think about it. Most people become teachers because they like the game. They enjoy it. They enjoyed school themselves. So they're in the small percentage. So the students that are outrageously brilliant end up going in different kinds of directions despite school. And the kids that aren't quite up to the par as far as teachers are concerned, those are the students that actually end up uh, not doing well in school, taking jobs they don't really want, or dropping out of school. And I'll talk more about that when we uh, start talking about a little bit of the stress and trauma related stuff. Definitely. So why do you think this is the case? Why do you think we have hundreds of thousands of teachers in the country and you know, you've observed 300 different classrooms or so and less than a, like a tiny percentage of them are really building a student-led classroom. Why, why don't you think teachers are on top of this? I, I think it kind of goes back to what I just mentioned, the fact that it's perpetual. We perpetuate the problem with our teacher training. And I honestly, it's ironic that I teach in schools of education and teacher preparation programs because I don't believe in them. And so it's ironic that I even get jobs because um, I have to be careful about some of the things I say because it offends my colleagues. But in fact, we probably should have started this with a disclaimer that a lot of the things I say could offend some teachers, but it'll be the minority of teachers that really feel like, hey, but I'm doing this stuff in my classroom. <laughs> um, <laughs> I, I don't mind offending the teachers that are standing up and lecturing all day long and assigning two hours of homework and then grading it and going playing the game of school. I don't mind offending those ones because that's not true learning. And so I think the problem is we literally, just this last term, I watched one of our teachers telling our students to do direct instruction. Here's how you teach. Then you need to give the students some guided practice and then you need to let them practice on their own. Then you need to give them homework as reinforcement and then we grade it and then we develop our lessons based on how they're doing. So it's, it's assessment driven, which is good, but the, that, those methods, they're not taught as uh, ideas or possible methodologies. They're taught as truth. This is how we teach. This is how we learn. And so our students leave teacher preparation programs thinking that's what good teaching is. And it really isn't. I mean, when we go, when we really look at how people learn, when we look at the neuroscience behind how brains learn, it's just, it, that's not the way we learn. So I'll give you, take Spanish class, for example. I, it's beyond me why we're teaching students to read and grammar in Spanish before they learn how to speak the language. No, none of us learned how to speak or to read and spell before we learned how to speak. It's not the way our brains are designed. Our brains are designed to speak a language and then from there we can learn how to write the language and we've got it all backwards and we're still doing that in schools. We've got it all backwards. So I just think it's perpetual. I think we are perpetuating the problem through teacher training. I think we'd probably be better off if we took our brightest students and said, hey, without teacher training, we're gonna give you a teaching job. And I think those students could actually go into schools and say, well, here's what worked for me, let's try this. And they'd be more free-minded to actually teach well. Definitely. So we've talked a lot about uh, Virtual Startup Academy and this program that I put together over the, the last few months. Um, so, as we've talked about, we do a lot of student-led classrooms. We do activities that students really buy into. And all these things that we've talked about today so far, this is what we do. Um, so I was hoping you could kind of give me some insight between the traditional model of teaching and which is basically lecture, graded assignments, tests, quizzes, yeah. check for understanding, stuff like that. And what we do at Virtual Startup Academy in my classrooms which is learn by actually doing things. Yeah, well, there's the difference right there. Um, in most classrooms, I would say throughout America, in most classrooms, teachers set the bar. They decide where the bar is. All the way through college, we give a syllabus showing our students where the bar is and we set it. If all students can't reach that bar, they're failures. If students are already at the bar, they're bored to death. They already know that stuff. And that's kind of, that's, that's an issue throughout. So um, the, other, the other problem is that teachers are teaching students to remember stuff. And that's really Bloom's lowest level of learning. If you look at the Bloom's taxonomy, remembering material is the lowest level of learning. That's kind of where we're stuck in American education. 
So what's different about what you're doing and with group work is that students actually are working at the highest level because they're creating, they're doing, they're actually, they're, they're doing stuff on their own. They're inventing, they're building, they're making, and that is, that's Bloom taxonomy, high level work. So uh, when you put your students in teams, there's all kinds of stuff going on and you're not, you're not telling them what they have to do. You're, you're kind of guiding them. You're kind of, and I, and I, I actually like your model because you're more of a coach. You're not a teacher. And I think that true teachers are coaches. Coaches are, you know, they're, they're the ones that actually get the most out of people. So I think that that's what you're doing because in the real world of business and science and pretty much anything except education, <laughs> Um, students are going to have to know how to work in teams. They're going to have to know how to collaborate and work well together and play well with others. So I would say that in your model, you're taking students who have completely different ideas, different ways of thinking things would work, different personalities. Um, they're taking their differentiation and they're bringing it together. And I think that is where true learning happens. Um, and so they get to apply their individual skills to the project and analyze each other's work. Again, all of this stuff is high level learning. And when they get to do this, when they get to disagree on things and then come together and, and see how other people's strengths add to their project, it's, it's something very different happens in the learning process that actually engages the amygdala and it starts engaging their emotions and bringing, and it starts attaching emotions to the learning event that they never forget. So what you're doing is actually what I would like to see happening in teacher training. So we can start teaching teachers how students really do become engaged and buy into their own learning and how that becomes a lifelong process. Yeah, all, all those things that you talked about are exactly what I took into account when I started designing the, the learning experience that uh, we use today at Virtual Startup Academy, because I knew one thing for sure. I was a great lecturer. I did that for three years and I taught these kids so much cool stuff about business and I had these fancy slides and, you know, we took quizzes and awesome graded assignments and all kinds of fun stuff. But when I started working with project-based learning, it really made me understand that you really need the kids to be engaged and they need to care and they need to want to come to class, not have the mentality of, oh, I have to come to class. Yeah. And getting to come to class versus having to come to class is the big difference. Yeah. You know, it's it, it's exciting to have kids, you know, come to a place where they break down your door to get in yeah. and yeah. they they will not leave. <laughs> they yeah. will not leave. Well, well, here's some more irony for you. I am a professor of teacher preparation programs and I myself hated school growing up. I couldn't stand school. I just really Getting to school, I would drag my feet. I would literally sit in a math class in high school reading a physics book because that stuff interested me and the math teacher that was lecturing me did not interest me. So I never liked school. I think my distaste for school actually helped develop a lot of my ideas for teaching. So I just think if, if, if I could design a classroom that's more like your academy, I would actually love going to school. I, I would come to school with so many ideas and I'd be on fire for, okay, here's some things I thought of in my sleep last night, guys, let's try this. And if nobody liked it, I would have fun debating it and engaging in that conversation and trying to influence others. That's how you develop your leadership skills. We're not doing that in school. So anyhow, I just thought that it's, it's, it's really ironic that I teach in colleges because nobody who teaches in colleges likes to hear my thoughts on how we should be teaching in colleges because it flies in the face of everything that we're doing. So that, that's why I was so excited to see what you're doing. When you when I got to see some of the stuff you sent me online, I was like, yay, Greg, I love the way you're thinking because this is how we engage students. Yeah, you gotta think different in this game if you, if you wanna change the world, so. Yep, that's right. Um, so let's kind of dig into your real expertise, which is neuroscience. Um, we talked about a lot of things in, in the previous, you know, few uh, questions. Um, how does this, these things create a difference for how students learn from the perspective of neuroscience? So um, I, I've mentioned a few things already, but one thing that keeps on popping into my mind is the fact that nobody likes to be told how to think or what to think. No one, no one even likes to be told what to do. I mean, as human beings, 
even in a work environment, no one wants to be told how to do their stuff. Everybody wants their own personality to come out in anything they do. And so that's just natural human tendency. We all just kind of want to be able to add our stamp to whatever we're doing. And so um, one of, it just, it's just our natural human instinct. And so I think that as soon as, one of the problems that we've done is we've put, as teachers, we put our stamp on how it's going to be done in the classroom. And when you look around, you've got 32 stamps out there. Why can't they all have their own stamp and put their stamp on the stuff that we're doing? So I won't get into the details of the neuroscience on why that is, but there is, there's so much proof that when students can put their stamp on their work, they become engaged and they start to enjoy it. So from a neuroscience perspective, that's something that really needs to start changing in the way we educate. Also, um, <clears throat> I mentioned listening and listening is a really big deal because we, and mostly for young boys in elementary school, young boys don't know how to listen and they need to be taught how to listen. And that's a skill that, that will actually benefit them through life, not just through school, but in their relationships. And so most kids have an attention span of about seven to 10 minutes all the way through high school. And that's, that's, kind, of, that's kind of the range is about seven to 10 minutes. Yet we uh, lecture and speak for 20 to 50 minutes. So anybody listening to this podcast right now probably is finding that, hey, it's, it's hard for me to really pay attention to this Stevens for, without really focusing my attention on him because that's just the way we've been trained in school. We haven't been trained how to listen for extended periods of time. And so we need to actually start realizing that our students can listen and be fully engaged to us for about seven to 10 minutes, then they need to start doing their own thing. We either need to change topics or get them working on something or doing their own thing or working as a group. And it, and it needs to happen pretty quickly or else you start to lose them. So with, when you walk into your typical college classroom, you'll, if you go in at the 50 minute mark, you'll see that most professors are still lecturing. And I can guarantee you there might be one or two out of 30 students that are fully engaged and getting something out of that. So according to neuroscience, I think lecturing needs to be rethought. The way we stand up and do direct instruction, that all needs to be rethought. Um, also, um, here's the best thing that I have learned in all of my study of neuroscience. When you actually get students to explore something without too much direction, and they make a discovery on their own without too much help. Something really crazy happens in our brain. It, it is phenomenal because we can measure it. With today's technology, we can actually measure what happens when a kid makes a discovery or an adult or a young adult make a discovery. The chemicals that start flowing is similar to what happens when you take a drug like cocaine. Dopamine and all other chemicals serotonin, all these chemicals that actually are feel-good chemicals in your brain start to flow when you make a discovery. And so what's really awesome about that is that if you can help a kid to see where his potential is, tell him the truth about him or herself so that they're willing to take chances and make mistakes, and after a few mistakes, figure it out and to make a discovery, that feeling they get is something that they want more of because it created a joy that they want more of. And so that feeling of joy through discovery actually becomes addictive if you're a good teacher or a good coach. So as a teacher, if I can put a kid in a situation that's just above his threshold of understanding, knowing that he's gonna make mistakes, according to neuroscience, if he is not only allowed to make mistakes, but expected to make mistakes through trying, through effort, using his abilities, knowing that he's going to get there eventually, so that it's safe, then when he gets there and makes that discovery, as a teacher, I can just sit back and watch him love learning and watch him become a lifelong learner before my eyes. And I've got, as an as a elementary or high school teacher, I have a whole year to do that with these kids that have never really felt that before. Even my A students, it, in, my, in my classes, if even in my college classes, I taught a, a college math class this year, and it was really cool because I, it's the... Uh, uh, intro to algebra, algebra really is what this class is for all the students who were not good math students in high school. I asked to teach this class because I wanted these kids that never got to experience mathematical success. And everyone was at a different ability level. And so I had to design 
a classroom where they all worked at their own pace and did their own thing. And it was really fun to sit back and watch students when they figure stuff out and say, man, I could never get that in high school. And I was like, that's only because you never got multiple attempts to try something. You get, you get your F the first time, great, figure it out. Go figure it out. Go work with Cindy over there in the corner. She figured it out last week. They come back to me and they show me how they did it. And they're like, man, she actually had a better idea than you had, Stevens. And I'd be like, I know she should be teaching this class. Isn't that cool how you guys figured that out? And all of a sudden their self-esteem starts shooting up. They're like, I, mean, I can do this stuff. Why couldn't I do it in high school? They just didn't, weren't in a situation where they had the opportunities to do it. So by the end of my math class, every single student, all 19 of them were at the level that I wanted them to be. And I wasn't even teaching anything. I never stood up front and told them how to do it. I simply put them in ability groups and went around and kind of coached them and gave them ideas from what they had already learned and helped them get to that point where they can enjoy the feelings that come from figuring it out by themselves through that discovery. And that's neuroscience. That, that's, that's the main thing I discovered is that if we can help people get addicted to learning, that's something they take with them for a lifetime. And that's more important than the math they're learning. So that, that's really, that's what it all kind of came down to. And now what I, the trick is to, how do I influence teachers to start realizing this stuff and caring enough about neuroscience that they'll change what they're doing in the classroom. And that's why I'm so excited about this program that I've designed because these are the teachers that want to change what they're doing in the classroom. Yeah, it's pretty amazing. I remember you talking about your fifth grade classroom uh, back in 2016 when we met. <laughs> and I never forgot those things that you talked about that you just described. And it took me a while to figure out how to do it because I was in a, I, I was always in a virtual environment, an online high school. So it took some time, but I definitely figured it out. And all those things that you just discussed, I've seen them in a classroom. I've seen the kids get addicted to coming to class and learning because they're in charge. It's, it's a total different paradigm in, in the world of education. Yeah. You know, they go out and find the information. They go out and decide how they want to present. They go out and decide what images and, and what content they want to learn. And it, it, it's exciting. It's exciting, it is. it's exciting to the point that it almost becomes annoying because they love your classroom so much you can't get rid of them for your break time. You don't get any breaks. <laughs> yeah, I literally had kids asking me, hey, Mr. Keel, can, can we come in like later in the day and meet with our teams? And can we meet on the weekend? I'm like, the weekend? What is wrong with you guys? But it literally happened. It does and happen. yeah, and I interviewed one of my former students a couple of weeks ago. Um, that's also that's that's my podcast episode one. And <laughs> he just described, you know, the process of look, we loved coming to class. We loved working with these other teammates that they had that she had, <laughs> because at my old school, everybody's spread out over the state. It's all online. So nobody knows each other. And my class is literally the only class that was at that school where kids got to come together and meet each other and build relationships and build community. And community is everything. So that's kind of my next question. What's the role of community in the classroom and, and how do we work with that? Yeah, well, <laughs> building community has always been an issue, but never more so than today in our techno world where these kids are living in a cloud. Today, community almost has to be taught in a way because um, I'll never forget a time I went to my daughter's, uh, a few years ago, I went to my daughter's softball party at the end of the softball season. And it was a pool party and all the parents were outside sitting around a table, we're eating hamburgers. And I looked over and there were no, but no girls in the pool. So I was like, where's my daughter? I went, went inside. They were all sitting in this big L shaped couch, talking to each other on their phones, sending each other pictures and they weren't saying a word. And I thought, oh my goodness, we're developing, we're raising kids in a society where they don't even know how to be a community. They don't even know how to function as real human beings and human, I almost wanted to take all their phones away and say, get outside and go be kids for a while. So <clears throat> I think building community is, if, if, if you're going to teach the way you and I are talking right now, the first step is to build community because a lot of kids don't know how to function well in a community. Um, and I think one of the most important things we have to do is teach kids how to be different because being different isn't safe. If you look at the neuroscience behind being different, when you're not safe, you go into fight or flight mode. 
and you actually are causing stress hormones to flow in your brain. So I'll give you one example. If in a classroom, in a typical classroom, if a teacher asks a question about something they had read or done for homework, it causes stress to all of the kids who either didn't understand it or didn't do it. So just by asking a question, a teacher can cause so much stress that it actually causes enough cortisol to flow in a kid's brain that it can become damaging if that happens. And it can cause scar tissue if that happens over and over throughout a school year. So teachers are actually doing damage to kids' brains without even knowing it. And these are the, and we don't see the effects of that until kids get into their adulthood lives in their 40s and 50s. That's when they start experiencing the uh, stress damage from childhood. But we're not gonna get into that for this podcast. We'll save that for another podcast. But anyhow, <laughs> um, that's just one example of how a classroom is not safe. So we need to create a situation in a classroom that students feel safe always. They can ask questions, they can be wrong, they cannot have the answers when, a, when it's asked, when a teacher asks a question, it just needs to be safe. That's the beginning of community because in a community, if you don't feel safe, you can't interact in safety knowing that your ideas can be different. So one of the first things we need to do as teachers, I believe is to teach kids how to see others differences not as wrong because that's our human tendency is to see other people's differences as deficiencies so kids need to learn early on that differences are not deficiencies they're strengths that we don't have so if a kid is different say if i'm a fifth grader or a, even a ninth grader and i and someone else has a different opinion than mine teaching them how to reflect on hmm i wonder why he thinks like that or i wonder why she has that idea so kids need to be taught that you know, our backgrounds, our life experiences influence our ideas and we bring, everyone brings something different to the table. So in a community, we respect those differences as strengths we don't have. And so we can work well together if we're doing a business project or a math project or a science project, it doesn't even matter. If, if I have the ability to listen to an idea or an opinion that I don't agree with and try to see the value in it, I become an active participant in a community because I become empathetic. And that is the way we teach kids how to not just empathize with others, but love others. Because one of the problems I have with education is we're teaching everybody to tolerate. Tolerance is a big deal in education. How do we tolerate people who are different? I want them to go beyond tolerance and actually learn to love those differences because once you love those differences, you start to love the person and you become an active, fulfilling community member who makes others better. That becomes a really strong community. And so I feel that community is the probably the number one most important aspect of teaching that I want to accomplish as a teacher because that's a skill. If a kid can learn to function well in a community, they become an active community member when they get out. And I don't even care what math they learn if they learn that skill. So I'd, so when you ask the question about community, I, I honestly have given lectures <laughs> in class over weeks on community because it's really hard to get people to think differently about how they are actively involved as a community member. Definitely. And that's, that's everything at Virtual Startup Academy. And we've talked about this in great yeah. detail. Um, and I think that's what excites me so much about what you're doing, because honestly, if you're if, if a kid is in your academy, the skills they're going to take, it doesn't even matter what content they remember. If they have those skills, if they can be successful, anything they do in life. Exactly. That's what I tell people all the time. It's entrepreneurship and and all the content areas around that finance, accounting, marketing, supply chain management, you know, design, those are just tools that we use to teach community and how to be good people and how to be productive members of a group and of a society and how to communicate. And, and that's just the best way that I've found to, to do this in education. Yeah. I, and honestly, what, it didn't take me long to get excited when, when you first shared what you were doing automatically i was like okay i was i was on board it really, and then when i really looked into what you were doing i realized man you are teaching kids how to work and play well together how to actively listen and participate and then how to act and one of the big things is how do we acquiesce when we disagree that's what they they learn that in building projects like the ones that you're doing with your students 
And so I think what that does is it helps a kid find their place. You know, this, this is who I am. This is what I'm great at. This is what I'm not great at. And so this is how I can actually be an active participant in this world and do well. And I think that's awesome. Yeah, that was my specific goal with all of this. And based on the, the feedback I've gotten from students, you know, I've had students who were afraid to come to class, who were afraid to talk to other people who didn't even come to class even. And you put them in this little group, this community, and let them work with each other and, and learn from each other and debate with each other. And all of a sudden, all these little light bulbs in their brain just flip on and they're excited to be alive even. And, and I love it. And, and you know what? It becomes even more fun when you know the neuroscience behind it, when you see the light bulb go off. Because if you think about it, something, something actually clicks and information actually reaches the hippocampus and goes to the thalamus and then gets sent to the right place in the brain where it's supposed to be stored. And it actually makes sense because once it makes, once it reaches the cortex and makes sense with things that they already know, all kinds of great feelings start occurring because of the good chemicals that flow. And the exact opposite happens when a kid is asked a question, doesn't know the answer and is hiding behind the kid in front of him, trying not to make eye contact with the teacher the exact opposite chemicals are flowing and learning can't happen in that environment. That kid cannot learn. So in your academy, these kids actually have the freedom and the safety to explore and make mistakes and do things as a team. And nobody's ridiculed for it or made to look like an idiot for not being able to do something. It's a safe place to actually discover and enjoy those good feelings. Why can't we make all classrooms like this? You know what? I ask that question all the time and I know the answer. We have perpetuated a problem that is out of control. We probably won't ever be able to fix it unless we get rid of teacher preparation programs altogether. So what you're going to have to do now is grow this thing so big that everyone in the country gets a chance to have a little taste of it. <laughs> Definitely. That's the plan. Okay. That's the plan for sure. Uh, so um, what about motivation? So kids need to be motivated. Um, how do we currently do this and how, how is what we do at VS virtual startup Academy a little different? Yeah, I, well, and we've already touched a little bit on this because right now the, the biggest motivator we use in school is grades. And there are only a few, a few of our students, maybe three or four out of an entire class of 30 are truly motivated by grades. The rest actually are motivated by things we don't even really know about because it's, it's really personal to each specific child. But the fact that we've been using grades to motivate for so long is also something that kind of baffles me because grades shouldn't be used as an end in and of itself. It should be used for teachers to know where their students are so that we can actually develop activities and events for them specifically to help them with the skills they're not getting. So if I did give a quiz and a kid got an F, that would just show me that as a teacher, I'm failing somewhere. It doesn't show me that they don't know something. It shows me that they don't know something because I'm not putting them in situations for them to learn. And most teachers don't use grades like that. Most teachers will give a kid a C and let them move on. When you give a kid a C, how can you teach them something new the new next day or put them in a new situation the next day when they haven't mastered what they were supposed to know yesterday? All you're doing is streamlining them for failure and teaching them that they're a failure because they need to master whatever it is that they need to master and experience that feeling of mastery and enjoy the good feelings that go along with that, attach an emotion to it, and then they're willing to jump in and try something new and learn something new. That, that's the way we should motivate. We can use grades as a motivator because we're never going to get rid of grades in school. Or we can use smiley faces, or we can use whatever it is that we want to attach to success. But kids need to experience the feeling of success before they move on. So grades aren't being used correctly, in my opinion. They can be motivators, but they need to be motivators for all students, not just the three or four students who love getting the A's. Okay, so that, that's, that's where I think we're doing it wrong. When students are motivated out of their desire to feel success, it's completely different, which is what I like about what you're doing, because, you know, students are working as a team, they're going to experience success as a team. That's the way it works in the real world. I don't know of a single profession where you're on your own working in complete isolation without relying on others for your success. I can't think of too many. There may be one or two ideas we could come up with it, but I'd have to really 
scratch for it to find a profession. Most of your students, I would say probably 95 to 98% of all of our students are going to be in a profession where they need to be able to collaborate and work with others to find success and to experience success. And if they don't know, if they're not motivated by that feeling of succeeding with a group and with others, they're not going to work well with others when they get into the real world. If they're used to being in isolation in the classroom and competing with others for the top grade in the class, those students usually don't do well in the real world because others don't even want to be around them. We want to teach our students to actually bring others up and we want to teach them how to try to be like the ones that can bring us up so that we know how to function in a system like that. And if students are motivated by the fact that we're only as strong as our weakest link, that really changes the way they take on any project as a team member. So I'm, I'm hoping that you're even doing that. I haven't, I haven't actually had the opportunity to go in and watch in person, but I'm hoping that I would see students in a group thinking, okay, we are only as strong as a team as our weakest link. And so whoever is not getting it, we need to help them get it and help bring them in and look for what it is they bring to the table. Because everyone has something to bring to the table. And so that, that is the motivation I wanna see in my classrooms. I want my students to be self-motivated because once they learn to become self-motivated, great. That's a life, lifetime achievement that they're always gonna appreciate me for. Definitely. And that that absolutely happens in our classrooms. Um, you talked about grades and I take a completely different approach to grades than anybody other than you that I've met. Um, so in our classrooms, it's OK not to produce good work at the start. Um, they understand this. What We're all about rapid prototyping. So I have kids writing business plans in a group yeah. in, in a class session, like yeah. four to five page business plans in one class session, hour and a half. Um, the way I grade and the way I teach my teachers to grade is do it as a group, make it verbal feedback. Don't have them turn it in and give them a bad grade and then write a bunch of comments that they're not going to read, go in during the class session, show them what can be better, yeah. give them the chance to figure out how they're going to do it. And then at the end of the day, everybody gets hundred percent because you've given them your feedback already and they've already fixed it. And this is completely different than anything I did before. And it works really, really well. Yeah. Um, well, I'll share a quick story with you. You can edit this out if it's TMI, but um, one of the things that I learned real quick in education is that I'm required to give grades. So I had to give grades and that didn't, that, that just didn't resonate well with me. And so during my first week of teaching high school math, I will never forget this. This kind of changed my philosophy of grading forever to this day. Um, a kid named Miguel, at the end of the week, I gave him a quiz and I, he, he took the quiz. He got one out of 10 correct. And so I'm collecting the quizzes and I, you know, I went over and I put the grades in the grade book while they were working on something else. And I came back and I realized, you know, Miguel couldn't even look at me. He couldn't even make eye contact with me because he was so embarrassed about his grade on the quiz. And so I started thinking about it. I was like, you know what? This is Miguel's life. I was told that he was no good at math by the other teachers who had had him. I was, and this is, this is his identity. And I thought, I'm going to go talk to Miguel and let him know it's okay. And so I gave him the quiz back and I said, Miguel, hey, I'm really sorry. And he's, and I could tell he was getting nervous because he's actually blushing a little bit. I said, Miguel, I'm really sorry that I didn't find a way to help you understand this stuff. I said, I'll figure it out over the weekend and I'll, and I'll, I'll give you a new quiz on Monday. And then I was thinking, I was like, you know what, why don't, why don't you go talk to Cynthia, who said, who does sit in the back corner? I said, go talk to Cynthia and ask her about it. And so, so when I was talking about this a little bit earlier, this comes from a real life example. This really happened to me. And so Miguel went back, he talked to her and he comes back up and he goes, Mr. Stevens, this is all I had to do. And he, and he she was showing me the steps. And I was like, that's exactly right. And I, I go, do you never knew that before? He goes, no, no one ever showed me that before. And I said, Maybe Cynthia should be teaching this class because that's actually a great way of thinking about this. And so I said, Cynthia, that's awesome. Thank you for helping out with that. I got, and I said, and I said out loud to the class, Cynthia, maybe you should help me teach this class. <laughs> and Cynthia was beaming. I was like, okay, that, that, that turned into an opportunity to celebrate someone else who helped somebody in my class. And then I said, Miguel, please go over and change your grade. And he goes, to what? And I said, go change that F, just turn it into an A. And, and this is what changed everything for me. He walked across the whole classroom going, first A ever. And I could hear him whispering it to himself. He was so excited by the fact that he got graded for his success 
that it literally changed my philosophy of education. When I saw that he needed multiple attempts, it, it kind of, it opened up everything to me. Like we're not, why were we always as kids stuck with a grade? Why are we, why are we always graded on our failure? Whereas he actually got an attempt, there was his first attempt in math in his life where he actually got to celebrate success after failure and it felt good to him. And it was only a few weeks of watching him do this where he couldn't wait to come to my class. Whereas before he didn't even want to take his math book out. He couldn't wait to come to my class. He was coming in a recess to tell me things he discovered on his own. By the end of the year, he was not at 10th grade algebra level. He was above because as his self-esteem was growing, his abilities were growing. And then he started, he grew this love for math for my class. And he ended up being a great math student. And it was, and so he made up multiple grade levels of math just through his own enthusiasm, which came, it just kind of accidentally fell in my lap. An accident in my first week of teaching changed my own philosophy of grades. So I've been stuck with grades, but I've been trying to find ways to use those grades as motivators. And so that's what's so cool about your academy is you're not stuck with grades. You're stuck with finding real ways to celebrate their successes. And I, and that's, that must be so fun for you because you don't have all the same rules that I have to abide by and try to get around. Yeah, well, we do have rules to kind of <laughs> abide by with, with the districts, but at the end of the day, um, the, the courses themselves don't require you to give C's yeah. or D's or, you know, usually how my grade distributions end up is like the majority, like almost all the class has 100%. Yeah. then there's like a couple kids that like don't do anything and don't come and yeah. <laughs> is how it is you know yeah, that is how it is but i see those things every day in class i see kids teaching each other that's the most powerful thing to me yeah um i see kids remembering everything they learn from each other and only a small percentage of what they learn from me yeah um and that's that's what i like about it uh kids getting excited to work with each other because they do understand this within a couple weeks of being in 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 my class is look there's people all around with different ideas and different you know philosophies and skill sets and all of this and i don't have to be afraid of that yeah i don't have to look at that in fear because i know that together we're going to make something insanely great yeah and that that's that's the exciting part for me and that's the motivator i mean you're right when I leave this podcast with you, I'm going to go to another meeting and no one's going to give me a grade for the way I participate in the meeting. My motivation needs to come from the fulfillment I get for my active participation in that meeting. Whether if I don't participate, if I do participate, if I actually add to the meeting or if I take from the meeting, but that's you're providing real life motivators for these students that actually will be taken with them for their lifetime. Whereas in the classroom, that grade means nothing. It really doesn't. Exactly. So uh, last couple things here, um, and I'll let you get to your meeting. Um, we've we've kind of talked in a bit of detail about the learning outcomes that, that we've designed here at Virtual Startup Academy. Um, how are they different from what you would normally expect from a traditional high, high school program? Uh, well, first of all, they're real life. <laughs> they're real life outcomes. They're the kinds of things that we want to see uh, adults actually using in real life. They're not uh, prescri prescribed student learning outcomes that we see. Um, I'll just use uh, California math uh, standards, for example. If you look at the California math standards for any grade level, I'll just take fourth grade, they are so detailed and they are so unattainable that either a kid gets it or they don't because you just, they're just outrageous. Yours are simple and straightforward and attainable and kids can get excited about it because if they, for example, if they want to become an effective communicator, so if they're not an effective communicator, that is something that they can be working on when they're working in groups. And that's something that you can actually, as a coach, go over there and help them with. You can help them with their communication skills. So that's attainable. And when they start becoming better at it, simply telling them, hey, that was a great way of participating and stating what you feel and not keeping it to yourself and helping them. And the feelings they get from that kind of feedback is a lot different than a grade they get for meeting a standard. So 
the learning outcomes, I, I just love that your learning outcomes really are straightforward, real life skills that will not just help them in business, they will help them in business, but I think that they'll help them in everything, including relationships, their marriages. These are, these are life skills. Um, learning how to understand their role and their impact on the community. Where else are they gonna learn that if they're not participating as a community in projects and they're designing their own outcomes? That's, those are great skills. So um, I, I, I just think that your learning outcomes are good for humans, not just for students. Great. Yeah. Thank you for that. You know, we're trying to make good people. <laughs> Do I really care if a kid is an expert in finance or is the best, you know, videographer or entrepreneur in the country? No, I want to create a generation of students who are good people who care about each other, who care about their community and want to help people live a better life. And that's the primary focus of our program. Yeah. Well, you know, one of the cool things about your outcomes is most adults aren't good at identifying problems and then creating solutions. Most adults are really good at seeing the problem and then becoming part of the problem by complaining. Don't, you're, you're gonna be actually teaching students to, okay, so what's the problem and how are we gonna fix it? What are we gonna to do to fix this thing? That's, that's the kind of thinking that I think better society. And I think that's why, one of the reasons that I think this is just good for all humans, not just for people in the business world. Excellent. Well, do you have any last uh, thoughts, comments, concerns, quibbles, quandaries, quarrels, any, anything to add before uh, we, we get uh, off this podcast here? No, I wish I had a quandary because I love that word. But, <laughs> uh, I really don't. We'll have to actually do this again soon. This, this stuff is really fun to talk about. Definitely. Well, thank you so much for your time, Dr. Stevens. And, uh, you know, we'll be in contact a lot and hopefully we can spread this across the entire country and do our little part in fixing the education system. Yeah, uh, let's do our part. Really good talking to you. Um, thanks for letting me be part of this. It's pretty exciting stuff. Right. Thanks. And everybody at home, um, again, I'm the CEO and founder of Virtual Startup Academy. You can find us at www.virtualstartup.academy and find all kinds of information, including my email and all of that. I look forward to speaking with you and getting ready to help your kids change the world. Have a great day, everybody.